Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurologist gives an overview of muscular dystrophy. This decade, this time, is, is really seeing a revolution in the care of patients with neuro, hereditary neuromuscular disease. A medical oncologist talks about the new chemotherapy recommendations for breast cancer. So chemotherapy, we knew that it did save a lot of patients' lives and you know, we use it for all types of cancers, but there, there's definitely a cost to it. There's, a, there's side effects that come with chemotherapy. And a scientist describes the role of microRNA. Well, microRNA are called micro because they're really smaller than all the RNA molecules that we were uh, familiar with previously. All that in a selection from our Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center, I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from a medical oncologist why some women with breast cancer may not need chemotherapy. Then we'll explore microRNA with a scientist from the team that discovered it. But first, we'll get an overview of muscular dystrophy. Muscular dystrophy causes progressive loss of muscle strength, and people who have it are usually cared for by a neurologist who specializes in muscular dystrophy. Upstate has Dr. Deborah Bradshaw. She's a professor of neurology who cares for patients in the muscular dystrophy clinic, and I thank you for being here today with me. Thank you for having me. I think we hear um, muscular dystrophy, and if we don't have someone in our life who's got muscular dystrophy, we probably don't understand what it is. So how do you describe it? It's a group of disorders, not just one type, that are hereditary, meaning passed down in the family. And they can affect other parts of the body, but they primarily affect the muscles. And their main symptom is progressive loss of muscle strength. Okay. And that, um, you said there's a, a group of them. There's different mm -hmm. types of muscular dystrophy? Yes. And um, they're inherited in different ways. Uh, the most common form is Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and that is uh, uh, passed down in a so-called X-linked manner. So the gene for that is carried on the X chromosome. Male. Um, well, women have two X's, and men have one X and one Y. Okay. And because this is carried on the X chromosome, women have another X to make up for it, if you will, whereas men have only one X. So if there's a, a genetic error on their one X, it shows, in a sense, much more dramatically than it would in the women. So, so Duchenne appears as much more visible in boys than it is in girls. It is, okay. Yeah. And it's you said it's the most common form? Yes. Of muscular dystrophy. So how does someone uh, learn that they have this disease? Usually, typically? usually the diagnosis is in childhood, and um, typically the, the children don't progress as normally they should. They may not sit at the right time or certainly stand or walk. So those are called 
um, motor milestones, and those would be delayed. And so typically those would come to the attention of the pediatrician who would then refer uh, the child to a neurologist. So I was going to ask that too. Does it, It's usually a primary care provider who starts beginning to think something may not be right, and they they would just then um, refer to someone like yourself. For... Right. It would usually first come to the attention of the pediatrician, and then the first very simple test that can be done to screen for it is something called a CPK. It's a blood test. And people with muscle disease, uh, you could say, leak this um, enzyme into their bloodstream. And so the CPK is, can be markedly elevated. So if you have a child who's weak or not progressing normally and has an elevated CPK, then that's, that's some muscular dystrophy until proven otherwise. And do you have to do other things to prove? Yes. So that begins a cascade of, you know, testing and evaluations. Um, in the old days, we had to do a lot of muscle biopsies, taking a piece of muscle, staining it, looking at it under the microscope to figure out what was wrong with the muscle. Increasingly, we use genetic testing right off the bat. You know, it doesn't require a painful procedure, uh, just a blood sample, or better yet, often a saliva sample. And the cells can be examined for, you know, genetic errors that that would explain the patient's weakness. Interesting, and and it's usually children, like you say. But are are there some forms that don't really surface till adulthood? Or there are, in fact, there are a number of forms that that show up either in young adulthood, or even in midlife. So it's quite a it's quite a interesting and and complex range of diseases that we see in the MDA clinic. One thing that um, is a common misunderstanding is that um, people who come to the MDA clinic, that's muscular dystrophy clinic, all have muscular dystrophy. In fact, the MDA covers, MDA clinic treats a variety of nerve and muscle diseases, many of which are not actually muscular dystrophies. So, for example, another common disease that we treat is uh, Charcot-Marie-Tooth neuropathy. So that's a hereditary condition, not of muscle, but of nerve. So the MDA um, umbrella covers a a lot of uh, disorders um, of nerve and muscle, neuromuscular disorders, and the majority, but not all, are hereditary. So there are some other things that are autoimmune, like myasthenia gravis, that come under that umbrella, too. And naturally, the same specialists who would do muscular dystrophy would also take yes. care of Yes. So mm-hmm. within neurology, there's a specialty called neuromuscular disease, separate boards, separate training, extra training. And so neuromuscular specialists are the ones that, um, that see uh, the muscular dystrophy patients. Now, what do you say to um, a family with a new diagnosis um, with, of muscular dystrophy in a child? What, what is sort of today, what is the outlook for that child? Well, of course, it's a devastating uh, realization, you know, for parents to understand that their child has, has a disease of any type. And neuromuscular disease, the muscular dystrophies are degenerative, meaning they get worse. Um, and many of them are associated with a limited lifespan. So that's always a very, um, very difficult experience for the family and patients to go through. But this decade, 
this time is is really seeing a revolution in the care of patients with neuro, hereditary neuromuscular disease. So, so uh, we can we can reasonably be very hopeful and encouraging to patients who are facing a new diagnosis that that things are changing, changing rapidly, and there's a lot of hope. Well, I definitely have some more questions for you for you about that. Um, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Deborah Bradshaw, a professor of neurology at Upstate who specializes in neuromuscular diseases, including muscular dystrophy. Um, so once you have the diagnosis, how is this treated? Well, it depends on the diagnosis, of course. Um, the muscular dystrophies are the hereditary ones, and the treatment options are, are fewer. We do not have cures. Uh, in that group, we tend to work on physical therapy, occupational therapy, maximizing, you know, the patient's ability to function. So we have our in our clinic, we have a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, um, who can be, see the patient and the family at every visit. They focus on, you know, what problems the patient is having in their daily lives, what things they're having trouble, whether it's going to school or working or even getting around the home. And then we try to um, arrange for support, um, whether it be, um, you know, uh, ankle braces or walk assist or, you know, in in the advanced stage, often folks um, need uh, power mobility devices or power wheelchairs that can greatly enhance the patient's ability to do what they need to do. So we, we try to focus on, once we have a diagnosis, we try to focus on helping the patient do as much as they possibly can. Mm. Now, there are other disorders under the MDM umbrella that are treatable, treatable now, not just treatable in the future. So myasthenia gravis is a good example of that. That's a condition where the immune system attacks the muscle and causes weakness. And we have excellent treatments for that. And people can go into remission and lead normal lives now. Another example would be um, autoimmune muscle disease, polymyositis, dermatomyositis, where the immune system is attacking the muscle, causing inflammation. We can use uh, medications to suppress that inflammation, get a good return of strength and a good return of function. So the treatment depends on the diagnosis. Did I read about a drug being approved recently for muscular dystrophy, though? You did, and that's a big deal. Um, there's a, a drug now that's FDA approved for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and it was approved in um, based on fairly limited data on a fairly limited number of kids. But what was striking is that the drug. So, um, let me back up just a little bit. Duchenne muscular dystrophy causes. Uh, is associated with a failure to produce a certain important protein in the muscle called dystrophin. And um, this drug, and, and boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy create no dystrophin. If you, if you look at their muscle under a microscope and stain it for dystrophin, there is no dystrophin whatsoever. And that's sort of, it's, a, it's an architectural protein. It's, it makes the muscle strong, and so without that, the muscle gets weak. With this drug, boys started making dystrophin. So that's just wow, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. We do not, we don't know yet how much is going to affect 
the function of the boys, but there's some there was some early evidence that it helped them walk longer, walk further, actually function better. So that you know that's a revolutionary. Um, it, it's a it's it's a huge turn of events. So, and then there's a whole class of drugs similar to that that they're using to apply to a lot of different genetic disorders. So, so there's going to be a lot of uh, change in you know the near future very quickly, and some of these disorders that were previously thought to be untreatable are are going to be treatable now. So it's a genetic um, disease. Are, are we looking at genetic fixes? Yes, actually patches, if you will. So they've figured out a way to to deliver medications that go in and sort of patch the genetic error and make it. Uh, we haven't been able to make them go away completely, but we've been been able to make certain uh, types of them less damaging, so the body can uh, function better. So yes, we're talking about genetic fixes. And the really big thing that's happening, I was just in the MDA uh, clinical conference in Washington earlier in the spring, and you know there was a lot of excitement because of Etepirson, the Duchenne drug, and others that are on the horizon. But um, the really stunning thing that I saw for the first time there was gene therapy for another disease that's under the MDA umbrella. It's called spinal muscular atrophy. You could think of it as it's a cousin of Lou Gehrig's disease, Mm -hmm. Um, but it occurs in children and it's genetically based, whereas Lou Gehrig's disease generally is not. So this causes, um, and it's not the muscle that's the site of damage, it's the the nerve cell that supplies or drives the muscle or the motor neuron. And um, spinal muscular atrophy uh, causes progressive weakness. Um, there's a, uh, the worst form of it, type 1, is seen in newborns. And uh, they have very little ability to move, to breathe, to suck, uh, etc. And their lifespan is usually two years maximum. So... Um, they have been working on something called um, gene therapy, and, and we saw evidence, video evidence of this at the meeting. So these children, they're using a benign virus, which doesn't reproduce itself. They're inserting literally the missing gene into this virus, and they give one shot, one injection to the infant as soon as possible after birth, and and the virus delivers the missing gene into the motor neurons. And the babies are now growing. They're sitting up. Wow. They're standing. Some of them are walking. And these are children who would normally not survive the age of two. Wow. For yeah. you to be seeing video evidence of that, you had to, that must have blown your mind. To... It was spine tingling. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's so exciting. Are there complications that people with muscular dystrophy need to be concerned about? Definitely, and that's one of the main things that we do in the clinic is monitor for and um, you know help the patient um, get help for those complications. So common, common complications would be weakness of the heart muscle. Um, so most of our folks go see a cardiologist also. Uh, weakness of the breathing muscles, that's sort of a later manifestation. 
um, sleep problems. So in patients with weak diaphragm lie flat to sleep, their breathing gets weak, and so they um, may not sleep well. Um, another thing that happens because of progressive loss of, of movement, the bones can develop weakness or osteoporosis. Uh -huh. So we monitor for that, and that's treatable. Um, you know, then there then there are the psychological complications, the social needs that arise from someone who's you know losing function. So there are many many things that we try to keep an eye out for and try to head off or help the patient deal with. So it's all sort of organized at the um, MDA clinic so that you have all those services available to... Yes, so we have what's called a multidisciplinary clinic, meaning multiple uh, specialists are there on site and see the patient all in one visit. It tends to be a long visit, but they don't have to ferry themselves all over the place sure. to see these people. The people sort of come to them. So we have social work, we have nursing, we have PT, we have OT, we have a respiratory and neurology and uh, so it, it works pretty well. Good to know. I, I really appreciate you coming to talk about all this. Um, my guest has been Professor of Neurology, Dr. Deborah Bradshaw. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, why some women with breast cancer may not need chemotherapy on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The recent headlines grabbed our attention about a study that showed many women with breast cancer may not need to undergo chemotherapy, but there's much more to the story. And here to help explain it is Dr. Abby Rami Sivapiragasam. She goes by Dr. Abby Siva. She's a medical oncologist at the Upstate Cancer Center, and I thank you for being here, Dr. Siva. Sure, Amber, anytime. Well, let's start by asking, were there patients from Upstate who were part of this study? Yes, yes, we are very proud to say that um, the study enrolled about 10,000-plus uh, patients all over the uh, world, and we, we did contribute to this study, and we still have some patients who are actively in, enrolled in this study um, ongoing. Um, they're being followed for their outcomes, so we are very proud to say that. So it's an international study. Can you um, kind of describe how it was done? Because it's over a course of many years, right? Right. This is over more than like nine to ten years. They followed these patients for a long time. Um, so the reason why they, they uh, wanted to do this study was because um, certain types uh, of breast cancer patients, uh, the, recently we are learning that they could avoid chemotherapy. Again, it's not for all comers, but um, when patients have hormone-positive breast cancer, and if they don't have advanced stages such as lymph node positive disease, um, there is a subset of patients who will benefit from chemotherapy, but majority of patients might not have to go through that route. And to tease this out, to tease out the patients who really needed chemo versus who could not be, um, who, who could not have to go through chemo, uh, they came up with this assay called Oncotype. And this particular study, what they were looking for um, is when patients fall onto this 
what we call the intermediate group. Um, do they really need chemotherapy or not? That's the question this study was trying to answer. We already knew that when patients fall on the low-risk group, we can safely avoid chemotherapy, whereas when patients fall on the high-risk group, we definitely have to recommend chemotherapy. However, the intermediate group was sort of a gray zone all along, and it was a very it was challenging for physicians to uh, make a decision about chemotherapy because we really didn't know what to do up until the study came out on the 3rd of June. Um, what they did was they randomized half of the patient to chemotherapy and endocrine therapy and half of the patient to just endocrine therapy alone. And after following them for more than nine years, they found out that they both did very well. Both groups did very well. So we know we can safely now avoid chemotherapy in this group of patients. But they also found out there's a subset of young women who are younger than 50 years old might still derive some benefit from chemotherapy. So there is a little nuance to that. But nevertheless, you received, you got a lot of data to help you infor- inform you on which women, which patients would benefit from having the chemo along with the Right, exactly. Um, we are now more confident. This is very personalized treatment for each patient based on their score. And we think now we are able to spare about 70% of the patients who would fall in this category from chemotherapy. 70%. That's why I was going to ask how many women this applies to. So we're talking about women who have a hormone positive breast cancer mm-hmm. and that it's not an advanced stage. Cancer, right. Stage. So um, 50% of the time when somebody's diagnosed with breast cancer, they have this hormone positive lymph node negative, which is not advanced stage cancer. So among those 50%, um, we can spare about 70% of the patients from chemotherapy, and only 30% would benefit from chemotherapy after the study. Okay, and you mentioned, though, there's still a little subset of the younger women, under 50 mm-hmm. women, um, that are still part of this that maybe it does make sense to do chemotherapy Right, for. right. Do we know why the age difference or what? Yeah, uh, again, the speculation is that we know younger patients tend to have more aggressive types of breast cancer, and therefore um, aggressive types of breast cancer usually respond well to chemotherapy. And that would be the reason why that subset of patients derived more benefit from chemotherapy. So in younger women, the cutoffs are a little different. So just to give you a, a rough ballpark on the scores that we are talking about, Anything less than 10 is considered the low-risk group. 10 to 25 is that intermediate group that they were studying in this uh, particular Taylor-RX study. Um, So we know anybody who is above 50 years old, the score of 10 to 25, they can still avoid chemotherapy. However, if it is a younger woman less than 50 years old, any score above 15, we would like to give them chemotherapy. So the cutoffs are a little different for that young group. Now, when you mention these numbers, the 10, the 10 to 25, the mm-hmm. 15, does that apply to that oncotype test? That right, exactly. Okay. So these scores are something we derive from the oncotype assay. And the way how it's done is there's only one lab in the country that will be running this test. What we do after the patient goes through surgery, we send a little piece of their tumor specimen to the, to this specific lab, and then in usually about three weeks' time, we'll get the score back. And the score can range from 0 to 100. 
Huh. Okay. So is this is this like a biopsy? It's a sample from right. The this surgery. is a sample from surgery. So it's very personalized personalized to their particular cancer. And is it so? It's looking at the genes. Right. So it's called a twenty one gene assay because they're looking at twenty one genes that are important for breast cancer pr- proliferation, which is dividing and spreading. Um, so based on the score, the higher the score is, the higher the risk of the cancer coming back in the future. So we already know when the score is about 25, their risk is high enough that we have to include chemotherapy part of our treatment plan. And so this is very specific to the individual woman, exactly. this test. Would it um, inform you on her children? as well because it's a genetic test or not? No, this is okay. not a genetic test. It is just a specific test to her tumor, to the tumor. only. I gotcha. This is not looking at their genomic, uh, like the usual genetic tests that we talk about, like BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation. Those are called germline mutations that somebody's born with. Those are tested very differently. These are called somatic mutations that are particular to the tumor tissue only. So tumor specific. Right, wow. right. Very space-agey, it sounds like. But this test has been around for a few years, right? No, more. Yeah, it's been around for more than 10 years. We've been using it. But like I said, it's that intermediate group we didn't know what to do with. But we knew the high-risk people definitely needed chemotherapy for many years. So let me ask about chemotherapy because for for decades we've heard that, you know, chemo is the treatment for cancer. Mm -hmm. So And it it kills cancer cells. Mm -hmm. So why, why are we trying not to give it to patients? Right. No, very good question. So chemotherapy, we knew that it did save a lot of patients' lives, and you know, we use it for all types of cancers. But there, there's definitely a cost to it. There's, a, there's side effects that come with chemotherapy, such as infections, sepsis, um, nausea, vomiting, um, you know, alteration of your kidney functions, liver function, hair loss, neuropathy, which is like tingling and numbness in your hands and feet. So there are definitely side effects involved with chemotherapy. So if, if we could tease out patients who might not really benefit from chemotherapy, we don't have to really expose them to it. Again, that doesn't mean that we could spare everybody from chemotherapy. We know this is a specific subset of patients that we are looking at. Okay. And some of the things are happening currently when you're given the chemo, the side effects, but then there's some that are longer term, right? Very true. Very true. So long-term risk, again, not uh, very high in terms of frequency, about less than 1% of the chance certain chemotherapies can even cause blood disorders, leukemias, things like that. So definitely we are worried. Yeah. All right. Well, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Abby Siva. She's a medical oncologist at the Upstate Cancer Center. And we're talking about the recent study that grabbed headlines um, talking about how some women with breast cancer may not need to undergo chemotherapy. But I also wanted to ask you about the endocrine therapy, because that seems to be applicable to all of the women in this group, right? Right. So... Do you have to decide whether a woman needs the endocrine therapy or do they all get some form? Right. So they they all get it because if you see, um, like I mentioned before, hormone 
positive breast cancers were the only patients included in this study. So when, when I say hormone-positive breast cancer, what it means is that their breast cancer is actually driven by the estrogens and progesterones in their body. So the hormonal therapy, what, what the, the role of hormonal therapy is to suppress the amount of estrogen or progesterone that they are producing in their body. So in a premenopausal young women, the source of estrogen is coming from the ovaries. So we use medications to suppress the ovaries and we use medications to block their estrogen receptors, such as tamoxifen that people might have heard of. But in postmenopausal women, you would wonder where is this estrogen coming right. from because their ovaries are not really making it. So that the source of estrogen in a in a postmenopausal women is from fat tissue and from the adrenal glands. So the cholesterol in our body can be converted to androgens and then to estrogens. So we use medications called aromatase inhibitors to block that conversion. So we are pretty much decreasing the amount of estrogen production in their body. So does that prevent cancer from coming back? Right, or exactly. That's what it's supposed to do. Exactly. So these are all um, these are all patients who are cured by surgery. So the role of our therapy, either endocrine therapy or chemotherapy, is to prevent this breast cancer from coming back. Even though we know the surgeon was able to remove the breast with uh, the tumor uh, with good margins. Our concern is can there be microscopic cells left behind in the breast or elsewhere in the body that could come back as a problem down the road, even sometimes five years or even 10 years down the road, they can come back. So by continuing, by giving them long-term hormonal therapy or even chemotherapy, we are trying to prevent this risk of coming back. Well, it sounds like there's a lot uh, lot more options um, and a lot more things to consider for a woman who's diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. today. Walk me through, once a, once a woman's diagnosed with breast cancer, what does an oncologist do to help her decide what is the best treatment for her? Sure, sure. So, you know, first first of all, they, they have an abnormal mammogram and they undergo a biopsy and the biopsy shows breast cancer. And it, the biopsy will tell us what type of breast cancer. Is it hormone positive breast cancer, hormone negative, or there's a one, there's another one called HER2 positive. So once we know that information, uh, we can tailor our treatment plan according to the subtype and the stage of the breast cancer. First, uh, if it is an early stage, stage one to three is considered early stage, patients um, can go for surgery and then we consider radiation therapy in certain situations and hormonal therapy in hormone-positive breast cancers and then chemotherapy in patients um, who have high-risk breast cancer, such as triple negative or HER2-positive or high-risk hormone-positive breast cancer. And so that's a course of treatment that would take several months? Yes, yes. It can take several months. Um, so... You know, surgery and healing, um, which surgery to heal, you know, from the time the patient has a surgery, um, the healing takes place about three to four weeks' time. They're pretty much ready for their next line of treatment. If someone needs chemotherapy, the second step would be to go through chemotherapy. And then the third step would be the radiation therapy. So um, if, if you have the surgery, then you do that test, that, mm-hmm. that oncotype. Yeah. So you have to wait. But that's being done while they're healing from the surgery, exactly. right? Exactly. So exactly. It doesn't take extra time. Seems like it's pretty well orchestrated. Right, right. Um, now, you mentioned the hormonal therapy. That's the endocrine therapy. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, right? Right. Um, does that continue after the chemotherapy or... 
Is right. it a lifelong thing or? So, so the hormonal therapy will be started after they're done with their radiation and chemotherapy. And once you start the hormonal therapy, for premenopausal women, we recommend it for 10 years. We know it's beneficial for the first 10 years. Um, whereas for postmenopausal women, we recommend it for five years. However, there are studies now looking at the role of hormonal therapy for 10 years in postmenopausal women as well. So again, it's a dynamic field right now. A lot of research going on. Some supported, some are not really supportive. So the question is still up in the air for that. So the results of that study in the future might change the exactly. way the treatment's yeah. being done. So before we go, let's just reiterate, um, this: the results of this study that we've been talking about, about whether chemotherapy is necessary, that only applies to a certain group of women. Um, this is for a specific group of patients who fell on that intermediate group based on the Oncotype test. So this is not for applicable for all breast cancer patients. So we still know that there is a, a subset of patients who would benefit from chemotherapy, which is the, I think that, sh that should be um, clearly emphasized for our listeners. Good to know. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the information. My guest has been Dr. Abby Siva from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Thank you, Amber. Coming up next, what is microRNA? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Whether in high school biology class or through ads for finding your ancestry, most people have heard of DNA. Less well-known is RNA and the short segments of RNA called microRNA. MicroRNA was discovered in the 1990s, opening up vast possibilities for scientific research and new medical tests and treatments. To explain microRNA, we're fortunate to have with us in the studio one of the world's foremost experts on the topic, Dr. Victor Ambrose. He's the Silverman Professor of Natural Sciences at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, where he runs a molecular medicine laboratory. Dr. Ambrose has received numerous prestigious awards, and he's been mentioned as a contender for a Nobel Prize. He and his colleagues are credited as the first to identify microRNA. He's in Syracuse to deliver a lecture to upstate researchers, and he agreed to speak with HealthLink on Air to explain in simple terms what microRNA is and why it's important. Thank you for being here, Dr. Ambrose. I appreciate it. Glad to be it. here. Thank you. So there's a, a lot of scientific terms here. Can we start by reviewing what DNA is and what it does? Yeah, DNA is the genetic material. It's a, a, a polymer of simple components, and those components are arranged in a sequence. Um, and so um, many of your listeners may have heard of DNA sequencing and genome sequencing, and this is a way of determining the sequence of those uh, individual components in the DNA. Um, and those, uh, that sequence um, is basically the blueprint for... Um, how the cell assembles its, um, its uh, components, which are proteins and RNA molecules, 
Um, and those proteins and RNA molecules essentially do the work of the cells and allow cells to divide and assemble into tissues and develop into an animal or a plant. So it's the information that defines everything that the, uh, the organism becomes, whether it's a single-celled organism or a multi-celled organism like ourselves. So how, how is RNA related to DNA? Well, the RNA is the, is the copy of DNA. So DNA you can think of as the repository of the information. And all you need to do with DNA is to replicate it every time you divide a cell to make a new cell. And so that each of the progeny cells has the same information. Also, DNA is a substrate for the machinery of the cell that can read that sequence and copy the sequence into a sequence of a similar molecule called RNA. So RNA and DNA are very similar in structure, and the RNA is actually a, a copy of, the D, of a section of the DNA. And we often think of that RNA as uh, a copy of a gene, or the, it can be, we refer to it as the gene product, also, the messenger RNA, if it's the RNA, is going to uh, now be then uh, translated into a protein sequence by the cell. So what is microRNA then? Well, microRNA are called micro because they're really smaller than all the RNA molecules that we were uh, familiar with previously. It's important to remember that all RNA molecules are, uh, are polymers, linear polymers of these, um, these components called nucleotides. And there's four different nucleotides in RNA, just like there are four different nucleotides in, in DNA, so you can make the copy. And most messenger RNAs that are actually the information from a gene that is making a protein would be hundreds or often even thousands of uh, nucleotides long because the protein may have um, you know, as many as 100 or 200 or more amino acids. But microRNAs don't code proteins. They come from genes that have evolved to regulate other genes by making this RNA molecule that actually matches up to other genes, other mRNAs, and can regulate the uh, activity of those M other mRNAs. And a short piece of about 20 or 21 um, you know, uh, bases long or nucleotides long um, is sufficient. And uh, evolution has crafted these small RNAs to be about that long. Um, and they are um, functioning uh, within cells to regulate the expression of proteins from other genes uh, that make conventional messenger RNAs. Huh, interesting. Well, tell me how you and your colleagues discovered microRNA. Were you looking for no, it? No, we were not looking for microRNA. We were studying a, uh, this worm, C. neurobditis elegans, or C. elegans, which is a nematode um, that normally lives in the soil, um, the largest, its adults are about a millimeter long, um, but it um, normally grows in the soil, but you can you culture it easily in the, on petri dishes in the laboratory. And so it was developed in the 1970s and 1980s as a so-called model organism for uh, animal development and behavior and so forth. And it is particularly suitable for using genetic approaches to pick apart, you know, the huh. components of cells and organisms and and identify the genes that are regulating um, the development of an animal. And amongst the uh, genes that had been identified was a gene called LIN4. And it just had a name because uh, we knew there was a mutation in that gene and that caused the animal to have serious developmental defects. 
right? And these developmental defects were very interesting because the animal is so small and it's clear, you can see them in the microscope and watch them develop in the microscope and watch all the cells form. And it had been determined by the folks who discovered this mutation that the mutant worms were developing in an abnormal way that was very, very interesting and, and unusual. They, the animal would repeat over and over its juvenile development. And so instead of advancing on to expressing a later developmental programs and adult programs, the animal would grow in size and just repeat larval programs. And so the animal would accumulate extra cells that are normally only made in early larval stages, and they would fail to make cells and even whole tissues that would normally be made at the later stages. So they were a fascinating mutant that was essentially a large larva crawling around on the plate. And so, on your petri dish, so I inherited that, um, a project of studying that mutant when I joined uh, Bob Horvitz's lab at MIT as a postdoc. And then when I started my own laboratory at Harvard um, in the, in the mid-80s, uh, we continued to study that mutant. And um, uh, members of my laboratory, um, uh, Rosalind Lee and Rhonda Feinbaum, uh, identified the DNA sequence that was mutated by that in that mutant. And they identified then, therefore, the, the product of the gene. Um, they initially were, uh, uh, you know, aimed at identifying a protein product, um, but they were able to show that the, that the gene did not encode a protein at all. And in fact, it encoded just this very short RNA of, um, of only 21, 22 nucleotides in length. And this was an unusual kind of, of, of small RNA that hadn't been described before. So as you can see from the story, we set it out to try to understand an, a very intriguing um, mutant worm, mm -hmm. you know, and we had available to us uh, this strain of worms that was mutated in this way so that we could employ molecular biology and um, methodology to identify the gene and the gene product. And it was an a new kind of gene product that hadn't been described before. So it was an accidental discovery um, in the context of trying to uh, explore, um, you know, an intriguing developmental defect. We thought we were going to learn about developmental processes only, um, but we happened to learn about all developmental processes, but also um, you know, previously unknown kinds of gene products that, that regulate development. Has uh, do you believe microRNA has been there all along and mm. just not discovered, or is it something yes. new? <clears throat> it's evolutionarily microRNAs have been the, they've been here for a long time, many hundreds of millions of years. <laughs> so how did it go undetected yeah. for so long? Well, because people we had been studying organisms, um, you know, using genetic approaches that do have microRNAs. Um, you know, humans have microRNAs, all, all, um, all mammals have microRNAs, insects have microRNAs, nematodes, and so forth. And folks had been studying, of course, insects such as Drosophila, Melanogaster, for many years. That's a fruit fly. Yeah, fruit fly. Um, but the technology for identifying the products of genes, right, were limited, and mostly because... Um, we did not have available to us the resource of a genomic sequence. Now, the fact that at the same time that we were doing our studies in the, uh, the mid-'80s and early-'90s, 
and coming up with this discovery of microRNAs. At the same time, um, scientists in England were assembling a resource of genomic uh, data about, uh, for C. elegans, for our organism. Mm. And using those resources as we went along were critical for our being able to identify this unusual kind of um, RNA molecule. In, in retrospect, we believe that uh, the reason why these were missed previously is because of the lack of these genomic resources that, um, and, um, you know, that uh, we had available and that were just emerging for us at the time that we were doing our studies. So it was a really convenient convergence for us of, um, of a biological problem that was intriguing, um, you know, the hard work of uh, Rhonda and Rosalind in the lab and the emerging community resource of genome, um, you know, res genomic resources that were being assembled for the community by, um, by uh, John Sulston and Alan Coulson in, in England. And John Sulston, by the way, is a pioneer scientist in our field, and he recently passed away uh, just l last week. And so, um, it was, it's a we're as a community, we're marking the passing of a, a, ver a very important um, scientist for all of us. Wow. Well, interesting. This is HealthLink on air um, from Upstate Medical University. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Victor Ambrose, one of the world's foremost authorities on microRNA. Well, researchers here at Upstate and, and elsewhere are working on a test that would examine microRNA in someone's saliva to identify mm. autism or concussion early. Um, where do you see future uses of microRNA in medicine or science? Those kinds of applications um, that you mentioned where um, microRNA can be used as essentially as biomarkers for, let's say, pathology and internal pathology or internal trauma that it's hard to otherwise assess um, can, it appears from the studies such as those, become um, accessible from a, uh, through a simple you know, saliva or blood test. I'm really excited about those, those applications. And also... Um, there's, of course, important applications for uh, microRNA in, in the genetic studies of, uh, of diseases such as autism and others, because, um, including cancer, because many of the genes that are uh, important for the, um, for, uh, in the context of these diseases are either regulated by microRNAs or, in some cases, are encoding microRNAs. So... We know that as we move forward with basic studies, of basic scientist studies of well, how microRNAs are involved in regulatory mechanisms of normal development and normal physiology, you know, these um, the studies of the genetic basis for diseases are going to converge on that, on that fundamental understanding, and I think we'll be able to understand mechanisms better um, and really, you know, tailor uh, therapeutic approaches to the knowledge about mechanism. This seems to me like an exciting time to pursue a career in microbiology. Um, would you recommend it to today's high school students? Yes. Today yeah. is a great time to do science in general, you know, whatever the science is. Um, and biology is amongst those sciences that is, um, biomedical sciences is a is an area of science that's growing um, rapidly and expanding in opportunity. And what I mean by opportunity is that the opportunity for learning fundamental new biology quickly 
and efficiently is always improving through technological advances. So technological advances in uh, computers, in uh, imaging, uh, DNA sequencing, um, and other kinds of molecular approaches, uh, including genomic editing. Uh, many of your listeners may be aware of uh, the uh, recent revolution, so to speak, in developing tools or adapting uh, mechanisms that have evolved billions of years ago in, in microbes. We now have adapted them to edit genes in uh, organisms such as um, uh, C. elegans, you know, insects, and human cells, and other kinds of mammalian cells. So those tools of, of, of genome editing allow us to rapidly make, uh, ask questions about the function of parts of genomes and, and address those questions quickly and with great precision. So I would encourage anybody who's interested in, in science to um, you know, put uh, biology and biomedical sciences high on their list of, of, uh, of uh, potential you know, occupations and encourage folks to list, look past, let's say, um, you know, any doubts or uh, concerns that people may try to, to instill in them and um, look forward with confidence because many of of because all of us who are presently involved in biomedical science are incredibly excited about the future we know that um, opportunities are are expanding um in ways that uh, we never never uh, anticipated even even a few years ago wow well i've enjoyed our conversation thank you very much for being here hey thank you my guest has been dr victor ambrose from the university of massachusetts medical school who's visiting syracuse for a lecture at upstate medical university I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. A common fear we have as we age is that we seem to disappear. Two of our writers demonstrate beautifully how writing can make us reappear. First is Zen priest and writer Angie Bosavan. Here is her poem, Spine. Exquisite fixture, tough backbone held its thick body, Framed the form, a temple walking, brilliant, prancing, now gone small, it crumbles, looks like the letter C. Looks like her mother's, and her mother's, like rice field workers and sweepers who used short brooms. Once shapely, fair, she stands humbled at two heavy post office doors as young men pass in and out, not seeing her. Next is physician Anne Anderson, whose poem, Room 204, shines a light on the woman who lies there. Room 204. Pink angora sweater, diamonds and pearls, dream of his hands around her waist, slow dancing to Lawrence Welk. Thin hospital gown, sparkling tears and pills, dream of leads around her heart, slow dancing to an irregular beat.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss the distressing increase in the number of suicides in the United States. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. 